You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello everyone, Rick Cole here, and you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We come to you each week from the beautiful Niagara region of Southern Ontario, bringing you all the big hockey news stories from the sporting world of 50 years ago. And this week, we're looking at June 8th to 14th, 1970. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their support's been crucial to our research as they let us access all the newspapers from the hockey land of 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall, even during this pandemic, are still producing outstanding craft beers and many of those are coming from recipes that uh, were first written In the late 1800s, they still produce some of the best pub food around as well, still available for takeout, and hopefully they'll open up soon. If you're in the Niagara region, once all this pandemic stuff gets done, get a hold of me, and we'll have a beer together at the break wall. In last week's episode, uh, some of the stories we discussed were, well, some of the new rules that were being considered by the NHL Rules Committee that were going to be submitted to the Board of Governors. We had news from Oakland uh, in the trial to determine the ownership of the Oakland Seals. The judge made a decision, but it wasn't a decision that was by any means the end of the story. And the Stanley Cup champion Bruins and finalist St. Louis Blues finally named their new coaches. One's coaching career would be relatively brief, while the other one would become legendary. Now, in this week's show, it's uh, it's going to be a little different. We've decided to do uh, the format change a bit because... Quite honestly, there's just too much news that I want to get to in one episode. Uh, We're going to have all the coverage of the NHL meetings, uh, but that would also include the expansion and amateur drafts. And what we're going to do is we're going to split this weekend into two episodes because I don't think anybody can really take listening to me for an hour and a half or so. So we're going to talk about all the news in the meetings, include the trades, the inter and intra-league draft, the preparation for the expansion draft, how they determine the order of selection, and all those kind of housekeeping things that took place, as well as some other news that the teams make. It's it's really busy even for just doing that, and we'll get to it right away. And then in the other second half of this week's presentation, we'll go into very great detail in the expansion draft, player by player, and we'll also talk about the highlights of the amateur draft. So let's get busy with this. 
Before we get into all the uh, NHL meeting stuff, though, uh, I want a bit of an update on the investigation into the death of Terry Sawchuk. That's been a major component of our, our podcast the last couple of weeks. And in 1970, it was even bigger news than the expansion. The Nassau County District Attorney convened a grand jury on the Monday of this week to determine the circumstances around Terry's death, to figure out whether any criminal activity had taken place, and that grand jury began deliberations on Monday morning. While no time frame had been discussed or even uh, estimated, uh, most folks felt that the process would probably take a week or so, but that wasn't the case at all. The entire hearing finished up in just over three hours, with the end result being that the grand jury's verdict was that Terry Sawchuck's death was not the result of any criminal act and it did not return an indictment. Ron Stewart, Terry's Ranger teammate, was the central witness at the hearing. He gave evidence pretty much consistent with what we'd been previously reporting and what we had read. There were seven other witnesses, none of whom provided any previously unheard of information. Uh, the stories that had been appearing in the press were basically, for the most part, what the grand jury heard. At the end of the witness testimony, the jury returned their verdict with almost no deliberation time at all. In other words, it was uh, abundantly clear to those who heard the evidence that there was no criminal intent or actual criminal act that caused the death of Terry Sawchuck. The Nassau County uh, District Attorney, William Kahn, said that although there were blows attempted by both men, and there were, there was no direct evidence from any witness that any of the blows were struck by either man. In other words, that they were successful in inflicting any damage upon each other. He also noted that both men had been drinking and both may have been slightly intoxicated. Uh, some reports said that slightly intoxicated was being kind. We don't know. We weren't there. I'm not making a judgment. The district of attorney also said that as far as his office was concerned, the tragic and senseless case was now closed. And now we get to all the news of the hockey week. Uh, and the big, the big news, of course, was the June meetings for the National Hockey League. And these historic meetings, they had a lot on the agenda to get to. The main item, of course, was going to be the expansion draft to stock the new Buffalo and Vancouver franchise, who had just freshly paid their $6 million fee to acquire 20 players each. That's $300,000 a man. None of these guys make that kind of money. Uh, we'll give you the best blow-by-blow we can of that in the next episode, but we'll tell you how they arrived at the drafts with a lot of uh, machinations, I guess you could say, a lot of maneuvering by the teams to get themselves into the best position they possibly could uh, going into the draft. There are also a couple of secondary drafts 
And that those drafts are usually held at these uh, meetings, the intra and interleague drafts. The interleague draft, intraleague, is held so that teams can take players from stronger teams that aren't protected. Teams are allowed to protect a certain number of players, and those that don't make the list are made available by way of this draft to the weaker teams in leagues. Been going on for a few years. There's also an interleague draft where NHL teams can draft players from minor league teams who own those players. Uh, In that draft this time around, it was a little different because uh, none of the established teams were going to take part in the draft, and Vancouver was not going to take part in that draft either because they already owned about 50, 51 professional players as opposed to the Buffalo Sabres who owned basically two. So the draft was uh, left in place for Buffalo to select players from minor league teams uh, out there, players that they thought might help their organization. And they did take a few, and we'll let you know who they are. So the week began on Monday with the executives from the NHL clubs arriving in Montreal at various times. A lot of them got there Sunday night, but most of them were talking to the press on Monday morning when the meetings were about to start. Uh, Just about all the executives that we knew of were staying at the legendary Queen Elizabeth Hotel, and that's where these meetings have been held each off-season for, well, just about forever. The NHL's case at forever would have started in 1917, of course. Most of Monday's news concerned plans by the various teams and previews of some of the issues that were going to be decided at these meetings. One item that seemed to be a real preoccupation for reporters and fans was how the order of selection for the expansion and amateur drafts was going to be determined. That's the order of selection for the two new teams, Buffalo and Vancouver. Drafts are usually uh, held in reverse order of standing, and with the two new clubs having, of course, no standing, last year they didn't exist, they had to figure out a way which would choose first and which would choose Second, for the junior draft, where all the NHL teams were participating, it would still be reverse order of standing, but it had been determined that Buffalo and Vancouver would get the first two choices, and the general feeling was that they were going to flip a coin to determine who would go first. So on Monday morning, the news that was going around seemed to be that the coin flip was the method by which the league would determine the order of selection. A simple heads or tails choice. Of course, if, uh, everybody who knows the uh, parties involved in this, the, the main ones being Buffalo general manager coach George Punchimlack and Vancouver general manager Bud Poyle, they were, they were going to start to ask, well, who gets to choose which side of the coin they prefer? Everybody knows how, how superstitious Mr. Imlack was. Uh, and most of us that were watching, we were pretty interested. We figured he'd have some sort of stunt, all which, of course, would be in good fun, to gain the favor of good old lady luck. Punch was really superstitious. In fact, there was a story that went around that Bud Poyle planned on flashing a $2 bill at each coin toss because he knew Punch Imlack was notorious for hating $2 bills, and if there was one in the room, he would literally have it removed. 
Punch Imlac didn't disappoint us. He he made sure that there was going to be some drama. There might be some mild controversy. And he fired what you might want to call a preemptive strike by making it known that he did not want the coin toss to take place just before the drafts were about to be held, as was the National Hockey League's plan. He proposed that he and the Vancouver team have at least one day advance notice as to what the selection order would be so that they could sort of devise a strategy on how they'd proceed with their selection. Now that seemed reasonable enough to me. If you're determining the actual roster of your team, you want to be able to plan ahead a little bit. The uh, expansion draft lifts, lists were to be made known late Monday afternoon, and so Punch figured if they would hold the coin toss on Tuesday, they'd have a whole day to at least prepare for the expansion draft and two days to prepare for the amateur draft. Well, the National Hockey League proved it had a sense of humor as well, and they wanted to make things fun. Well, actually, what they wanted to do was make things more attractive for television and film cameras, whom they were allowing for the first time to actually cover the event in detail. They wanted to make it live TV, but uh, they couldn't find anybody who wanted to cover it live, cover the NHL live outside of Canada. Nah, it wasn't going to happen in 1970. Anyway, the NHL wanted to make it more fun, and uh, we learned that the method to determine the order of selection wasn't even going to be a coin toss at all. The league, and from what we've been able to find out 50 years later, no one's claiming credit or blame for this, uh, the league decided to rig up some sort of roulette wheel for the benefit of the TV and film cameras. Uh, was supposed to look like the crown and anchor wheel you saw every summer at the local uh, Lions Carnival, if you had a local Lions Carnival like I did where I lived. Uh, And apparently the process was going to be an over or under seven sort of thing. What a great idea. What could possibly go wrong? In case you're wondering, and I started to wonder this, why was the NHL so determined to wait until the last minute to have the spin of the wheel just before the draft to kind of keep the uh, order of selection a secret, Uh, there was actually a couple of explanations. Number one, as I mentioned, the drama. The drama that would be created by doing this live in front of TV cameras. That, That was pretty obvious, but that's what they wanted to do. But there was another reason. It was Clarence Campbell, the National Hockey League president, who thought that by keeping the order of selection unknown and undetermined until the very last minute, Clarence thought that would prevent the types of side deals and transactions like took place during the 1967 expansion draft. Remember all the... uh, skullduggery that went on between Minnesota's Ren Blair and Sammy Pollock, general manager of the Canadians. They don't want those side deals unduly influencing this expansion draft because it makes it look like the whole process is maybe a little less credible, a little less legitimate. If you knew what went on in National Hockey League backrooms, 
in 1970s and even worse before then, they weren't going to dispel that theory at all. Well, the idea to uh, try and prevent these kind of side deals, uh, Clarence Campbell must not have been paying attention because they were already too late. Days before, Tom Watt in the Vancouver province had already reported that Vancouver GM Poyle and Scotty Blowman, the manager of the St. Louis Blues, had already arranged some sort of side deal. The particulars weren't uh, yet known to Watt, but they were to Hal Sigurdsson of the Vancouver Sun. He had the figured he had the goods on the deal, and uh, he reported that, uh, that there were at least two players that the Canucks were going to acquire in this expansion process, and they were Andre Boudria of the Blues and Orlin Curtinback of the Rangers, both centers. Uh, as you'll find out when we go into the actual players they acquired, those guys ended up right where Hal Sigurdsson said. Hal also reported that there was another pending trade that Vancouver had made with Toronto for the services of center Mike Walton. Anyway, it seemed like Sam Pollock wasn't really talking too much to either of these teams about a trade. So Campbell might have figured that the chances of a previously arranged side deal over a first pick were probably remote. Sam was getting smarter and he was doing his talking in the background. What I don't think anybody counted on was Punch Imlach being proactive. And as we would see as time went on, Punch had some tricks up his sleeve. Anyway, the uh, Vancouver Sun, Sigurdsson's paper, also reported that Buffalo had already made deals just like Vancouver. And they would end up with Alan Hamilton of the New York Rangers and Ron Anderson of the St. Louis Blues and even Chris Evans from Phoenix of the Western Hockey League. Uh, the Sun also reported that by hook or by crook, Punch Imlach was going to get himself Kevin O'Shea from San Diego, Cliff Schmatz from uh, Portland, and Bobby Schmatz, who played for Seattle, and Brian McDonald of the Denver Spurs. As we'll talk about in a few minutes, some of these names indeed did end up in Buffalo. And the Sun, Sigurdsson specifically, wasn't just concentrating on Vancouver and Buffalo. They had a report of a massive trade that was in the works that would shake up the league and almost maybe take away from all the drama around the expansion draft. Hal Sigurdsson reported that the Chicago Blackhawks and New York Rangers were discussing a transaction whereby superstar Bobby Hull would end up wearing the red, white, and blue of the New York Rangers. Going to Chicago in exchange were a couple of right wings, Rod Gilbert and Captain Bob Nevin, and defenseman Rod Sealing. As we know that now, 50 years later, that one never took place, but a lot of tongues were wagging about that. Now, some other rumors making, around, making the rounds Monday as well. Uh, former Western Hockey League Canucks general manager coach Joe Crozier was said to be hooking up with the Western Hockey League Phoenix Roadrunners. Interestingly, at the expansion, these June meetings, Crozier was an uh, unofficial employee of the Buffalo Sabres working with his old friend Punch Imlach. Now, you might ask, why was Joe Crozier working in an unofficial capacity? 
Here's why. Joe was not officially a member of the Sabres staff. He wasn't on the payroll, according to the paperwork that was filed with the league. Joe was just an unemployed guy looking for a job. Crozier was dispatched to the Western Hockey League teams, at least by telephone where he had to, and in person in the weeks beforehand. And he spoke to various players on the Western teams and asked them if they would be interested in moving east to play for the expansion team in Buffalo. He made it very clear, so they say, that he was not an employee of Buffalo, but that he was going to work for an unnamed Western League team, and he wanted to see if anybody wanted to stay west or if they wanted to move east. So there was method and punch madness, and the reason he had Joe doing this is because he didn't want to have to pay fines for being caught tampering with other teams' players. Another story had Sammy Pollock working on deals to acquire Oakland defenseman Carol Vadney, the best player on that team, or left-winger Jean-Paul Parise of the Minnesota North Stars. Apparently, Sammy was offering center Ralph Backstrom as bait for each of these two teams, and the story was that he was going to have to come up with a little more than that. One other news item of note on Monday, and that involved the North Stars general manager, Ren Blair. He was rushed to hospital with an attack of kidney stones. Apparently, according to Minnesota newspapers, Ren had been bothered by kidney stones uh, for for the uh, previous two weeks before the meetings. Now, on the way to the hospital, Blair was able to tell people he was going to still make an announcement on Tuesday as to who would be coaching the North Stars next season. The bird said he might have to operate for the week out of the hospital or his hotel room, but he was still going to be an active participant. So late Monday afternoon, uh, long before the afternoon papers deadlines had passed, I think it was 5 p.m. if I'm not mistaken. I know that's what they did in 1967. Uh, The uh, established teams protected lists for the expansion draft were announced. Uh, there weren't many surprises. Uh, there were some well-known names that were made available to Buffalo and Vancouver, but in the most part, uh, these well-known names carried very high contract price tags and their best before dates were probably uh, quite a bit past. Uh, the Boston Bruins made a little bit of news by confirming that they were protecting defenseman Ted Green, who, as everybody knows, missed the entire season with a fractured skull that he suffered in that vicious stick-swinging duel last fall in an exhibition game with the St. Louis Blues in Ottawa, where he was clubbed over the head by the Blues' Wayne Mackey, who, coincidentally, was made available in the draft. The New York Rangers left three very well-known veteran players off their protected list. Left-winger Donnie Marshall, right-winger Ron Stewart, and he's been in the news lately, and defenseman Tim Horton, whom they acquired from the Maple Leafs back in March. It has been suggested, though, that Rangers general manager Emil Francis has made one of those cute side deals to ensure that Horton is going to remain with the Rangers somehow. It's hard to see that Punch Imlac would ever agree to a deal in which he would pass up 
Horton, uh, whom he could bring to Buffalo, Punch and Tim go back a long way. The Maple Leafs, who were unprotected, who might uh, be of interest to Buffalo and Vancouver, were defenseman Pat Quinn, a guy with a lot of size, a lot of heart, and unfortunately not quite as much playing skill. Marcel Pronovo, who spent most of last season coaching in the Central League, and right winger Floyd Smith. Again, he's a guy who goes way back with Punch Imlac, back to the 1950s in their days, Springfield in the American League. The Leafs did uh, protect one player that was a bit of a surprise, and that's uh, the son of assistant general manager King Clancy, young Terry Clancy. Blues uh, general manager Scotty Bowman must have been upset, but he had to protect the guy he just named coach of the Blues, Al Arbor. Al, of course, was the captain of the Blues and probably one of their best defensemen over the first three years in the league. But Scotty, apparently, from what we've been able to determine through reports in the different papers, Scotty probably received information that Al might, if unprotected, have been selected as a player by one of the two teams, Vancouver or Buffalo, and knowing Punch Imlach, I can imagine that he would have selected Arbor and then held him for ransom to ensure that Scotty paid through the nose to get his coach back. Now, a lot of teams, they didn't have much to worry about. Chicago is one of them. They had prepared themselves well for this expansion draft, and it seemed uh, to us before the draft that the only player of note that the Blackhawks were leaving available was that fine veteran forward Gene Ubriaco. Some other news on Monday included some of the rule changes passed by the Rules Committee, which were sent to the for approval to the NHL Board of Governors. Now, we talked about the free face-off rule that was supposed to be tried. Well, for some reason, that didn't go. And maybe I'll, I'll be able to expand on that a bit. The reason that rule was not sent to the uh, governors was because the governors felt that a free face-off was too much of a penalty for a simple puck over the glass intentionally or freezing the puck. Instead, they felt that a two-minute power play was the appropriate punishment. What they were really worried about was a center teeing up a soft pass to Bobby Hull, who would then proceed to rip someone's head off with a shot. They didn't want to see anybody die, and God forbid they ordered players to wear helmets or goaltenders to wear masks. And, and there might be a little more about that later on. One new, pro- new uh, proposed rule that was virtually assured of getting approval from the governors, and this one comes out of the blue. We didn't hear about this at all. Uh, it was a rule to uh, restrict the curvature of a hockey stick blade to no more than half an inch. That would mean if you laid the blade flat on the ground or the ice, uh, it couldn't raise up more than half an inch from the ice surface at the highest point, the apex of the curve. A testing device was going to be devised, and when a complaint was made about a stick and it was found to exceed the specified curvature, the stick would be immediately impounded and a minor penalty would be assessed to the player using such stick. There were a few other uh, rule rule changes that were proposed and probably going to be adopted. Uh, 
they wanted to double the fines for match misconduct and game misconduct penalties. Seemed like a good idea with salaries going up. They figured the players could put a little more money back in the league. Misconduct penalties would now be automatically assessed for any player who bangs the boards with his stick or, quote, any other implement. I don't know what that is. Maybe a helmet? Coaches, trainers, and any other club officials were subject to this rule as well. And one rule that the uh, Board of Governors wanted to propose and were considering, and they were likely to improve, was the changing of the uniform format so that the home teams would now wear their white uniforms in their own rinks and the visiting team would wear their dark colors, giving fans in the home rinks a good look at the true colors of each team from around the NHL. And now we look at uh, some of the personnel moves, player moves, coaching moves that were being made this week. Uh, here's one that I just uh, I just couldn't understand at the time. It's about the rich getting richer. The Stanley Cup champions this year are the Boston Bruins. And no question, they are the best team in the NHL. And now they're getting richer yet. The Bruins went into this week with three first-round draft picks. And as of Monday, they now, turns out they have four. The fellow who went on the record, I reported on this previously during the season, General Manager Scotty Bowman of the Blues, said that one of the bad things that was going on with the uh, league was expansion teams trading first-round picks to established teams. Well, Scotty Bowman just did exactly that. Before uh, this week, he had acquired center Jim Lorenz from Boston in exchange for future considerations. Well, after careful considerations, Scotty Bowman figured that Jim Lorenz is better than whoever the Blues would have available to draft with their ninth pick. So they're giving the Bruins ninth pick to see if they can figure it out better than they could. Four first-round picks for the Stanley Cup champions. I didn't ever want to hear any expansion team whining again about not being able to achieve parity with the Eastern Division when they made deals like that. I have infinite respect for Scotty Bowman, but I really couldn't understand at the time. But when we look at uh, what happened during this draft and who was selected number nine and pass, I wonder where they compare with Jim Lorenz. The North Stars general manager, Ren Blair, despite those kidney stones, finally let the cat out of the bag on who his new coach was going to be. He is former Cleveland Barons coach and general manager, 42-year-old Jackie Gordon. It was a pretty well-kept secret, really, that Gordon uh, was general manager Blair's first choice as coach of the North Stars, if you believe the stories being told by Blair and other reporters. Blair was reported to have begun to negotiate with Gordon immediately after Punch Imlach turned down a job offer from the North Stars last winter and he kept it under wraps. Maybe this is why when Harry Sinden left the Bruins right away, Blair came out and said he wanted Sinden to work for the North Stars, but he didn't mention him as coach, just some capacity. Maybe Blair really did have Gordon in mind all along. 
Somehow, I think if I had a choice between Harry Sinden and Jackie Gordon, well, I know who I'd take. Jackie Gordon, as I mentioned, is 42 years old and is recognized, however, as one of the most capable hockey men who had not yet been employed at the NHL level on a full-time basis. The Stars also announced that they'd signed goalie Gump Worsley for another season. Worsley had told the North Stars he would not sign until he found out who the new coach was and he said if he didn't like the coach, he wasn't coming back to Minnesota. But Gump, as soon as the news on uh, Gordon came out, he signed right away for an amount that was generally considered to be in excess of $50,000 a season with Worsley calling it the best contract of my entire career. Everybody knows who Jacques Plante is and he's famous for being the first I guess you could say modern day goalkeeper, not the first actually, but the first modern day goalkeeper to take to wearing a face mask full time. Well, Jock was at the NHL meetings, uh, fully aware that he wasn't likely to be involved in any transactions because he had been just freshly traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs. But he was there and he used the occasion of the NHL meetings to reveal a newly designed goalie face mask And quite frankly, it looks like something imported from the future. More importantly, it looks like something to which a lot of care and thought was devoted during its design. If you follow us on Twitter, you will see pictures of this mask taken this week at the NHL meetings, and you'll see what we mean about the design. Jacques says that this new creation will withstand a blow from a hockey puck traveling at 135 miles an hour, according to tests that were performed at the University of Sherbrooke, with whom Jacques worked to design this mask. The material it's made from is uh, woven fibers um, with resin mixed in to give it some sort of rigidity. The design of the mask makes it fit better. Uh, It's closer to the face. And I can attest, especially around the eyes, the goalkeeper's vision with this mask is greatly enhanced compared uh, to older models, especially your peripheral vision and your ability to see straight down at the feet. And as a goaltender in those days, one of my biggest complaints about wearing the mask was being unable to track the puck when it was at my feet. The first time I tried this mask and I got one as soon as they were available, I could not believe how well the mask fit and actually allowed me to do that. The mask also had a very, I guess you could call it angular design, and that was intentional. The design was uh, intended to deflect pucks away from the head on impact rather than absorbing the full force and energy of the blow as happened in previous models. That's why, according to Jacques, the model of mask he wore in the Stanley Cup playoffs when he was injured by Fred Stanfield's slap shot, that's why the mask cracked. If the mask had these built-in ridges that would have caused a deflection rather than absorbing the impact, Jacques feels he might not have been as badly injured. This mask I found also to be much lighter than older versions and had more ventilation to improve on breathing and reducing heat. And that was another 
pet peeve for most goaltenders in 1970. The masks were too hot, and this did a little better job of uh, reducing those factors. I could tell you when the mask became available, I got one immediately. I still have it here, along with the older pretzel-style uh, mask that Plant marketed that preceded it. This mask was really a huge improvement at that time, and even today, you can see how the design of that mask is incorporated into the wonderful equipment that goalkeepers wear today. Because the NHL rosters were frozen, there were no real player trades going on before Tuesday when the intra and interleague drafts were going to be held. But the Penguins, Red Kelly managed to make one. He went out and he bought a player from the American Hockey League Baltimore Clippers. And he is a young center, Rod Zane, an industrious type of player. Doesn't have much of a scoring talent, but he's real good checker. And from what we're told, he's good in the faceoff circle. So Tuesday arrived and of course the big order of business on the agenda was the determination of the order of selection for the expansion and amateur drafts. It was Tuesday morning when we found out that it wasn't going to be a coin flip at all, that it was going to be another method to determine the order of selection. I really thought this was one of the goofiest uh, kind of amateurish idea that uh, the NHL had come up with yet, but and I say nobody that we could find out took credit for this. Somebody came up with the idea that they should use a roulette wheel uh, to make the event a little more appealing and interesting to television and film cameras. Uh, the game and chance would now become an over and under contest. Over seven or under seven. There's going to be 13 numbers. One to six would be the lower and of course the other everything above seven. This was a great idea. Uh, there could possibly be much more fun than a simple flipping of a coin and what could go wrong well upon finding out how this was going to work Sabres general manager punch Imlac decided to hedge his bets rather than depending on luck imagine that punch Imlac trying to reduce lady luck and try to actually enhance his chances just by by simple logic punch went to bud Poyle of the Canucks their general manager and he proposed that the teams agree to split the choices. Punch's idea was whoever would win the first choice in the first spin of the wheel, that would be first choice in the expansion draft, they would automatically receive second choice in the amateur draft. Bud Poyle proved he was a bigger gambler than Punch Imlac. He decided the odds were at least even for him, and he decided he wanted to get it all. So he flatly rejected Imlac's offer, Often he sort of considered him that weak on this, and he decided to risk an all-or-nothing scenario. One you got to learn when you're dealing with Punch Imlac, you should never tempt fate, or Lady Luck for that matter. And we'll let someone who was there describe exactly what happened. June 1970, the NHL Players Draft in Montreal. This is where the Sabres would acquire the players who would wear their colors through the growing pains considered unavoidable in the first couple of seasons. The first spin would determine whether Buffalo or Vancouver would get first choice in the expansion draft. Remember, it's Buffalo high, Vancouver low. 
Buffalo had one first choice of the players in the expansion draft. Then came the all-important second spin. Number one. Number one. Vancouver the winner. But wait. It's two ones. Eleven. The Sabres had also landed first choice in the amateur draft. So punch him, Lack, he of the rabbit's foot and the lucky suit, always wearing a lucky fedora behind the bench, once again had good fortune and lady luck on his side. Let's just hear how Punch felt during all that uh, commotion go, that as it went on and the scene unfolded. Punch, I've always known you were a lucky man, but lady luck was right in your hip pocket today. Well, I've always said it's better to be lucky than good, and I'm quite uh, happy at, uh, with the way things went this afternoon. Well, tell us how you felt when that roulette wheel was spinning down there. Well, actually, uh, naturally, uh, it, uh, it's quite... Uh, you wonder what's going to happen. Of course, we won the first one, and uh, we'd won the toss before, and said, well, it's not... Uh, the odds are starting to go against you. And, of course, I think uh, when uh, they call out the number, I wasn't looking at it. I was looking down at the paper trying to do something, and they said number one, well... I said, well, that's it. But uh, then it came back, it was two ones, and it was number 11, and we won, and I think the, the heart just turned right over, started a pound pretty good, because it's very important that uh, that was the, the one to really win. Number 11, of course, is the, the number that Jill Perot wears. Now, can we assume from this that you're going to draft Jill Perot number one tomorrow? I would assume uh, uh, that you could say that, that I'm going to take Jill Perot tomorrow. You have to wonder how Bud Poyle felt uh, after all this took place. Uh, maybe Bud was wishing he'd given more consideration to Imlac's offer to split the choices. Just think, Vancouver, if Bud Poyle had agreed to punch Imlac's proposal, the Sabres would have picked first in the expansion draft, as they did, but the Canucks would have landed Gilbert Perrault. How different might history have been? Late on Tuesday, Red Kelly of the Penguins. Red was never, could never be accused of not being very bright. Very, very smart man. And Red got together and decided to pull a fast one. Kelly knew, as the new general manager of the Penguins, he wasn't going to be able to protect all three of his goaltenders, Les Binkley, Al Smith, and Joe Daly. So, rather than lose Joe for nothing, he decided to put him on waivers. See, here's, here's what Red knew. Punch, Imlac, again, during all this roulette wheel stuff, he wanted to make sure that the team that got the first choice in the expansion draft also got first choice in the any other uh, player movement procedures there were, mainly waiver claims. I don't know if Punch worked this out with Red first or not. Uh, no one says they did, but they were close. They respected each other. They might have done that. But Red knew if uh, Joe Daly went in the expansion draft to Buffalo or Vancouver, 
he was going to realize absolutely nothing for losing Joe Daly, or for that matter, any other Pittsburgh player. But if Red put Joe Daly on waivers, he also knew, maybe was absolutely sure, that one of Buffalo or Vancouver would claim the young Pittsburgh goalkeeper. Well, of course, that's exactly what happened. Daly's name was announced as being on waivers. The Penguins were attempting to, quote, wave him out of the league. And Punch Imlach immediately made the claim, wrote out a nice check for $30,000 to Red Kelly, and he had himself a goalkeeper with NHL experience, and Red Kelly had $30,000 of the Knox's money that he ordinarily wouldn't have been able to claim. I, I really hadn't heard all the details of this story before we got into this. I had always mistakenly thought that Joe Daly was one of the Sabres' uh, expansion picks. And then as I started looking at the list, I went, where's Joe Daly? Going into it a little farther, we found out that Joe became a member of the Sabres before the expansion draft ever took place. Also Tuesday, I wanted to uh, uh, mention to you about the intra and interleague drafts. I already explained uh, what they were about. There was some curious wheeling and dealing through the, the, the inter intra league draft, the NHL draft within itself. Uh, Guy Trottier went from the uh, New York Rangers to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and uh, that was basically prearranged. I don't know how they got Los Angeles to pass on him, but uh, it was arranged that Trache would go to Toronto as part of the payment for the Tim Horton deal. Another curious deal saw Ted Harris move from Montreal to Minnesota, and it was so complicated, it would take too much time to explain it here. But it was a deal worked out by Sammy Pollock and Ren Blair once again, that would see the North Stars get Harris with the Canadians risking nothing by exposing Harris in the draft. And if anybody wants to contact me directly, I will explain how this took place. But by gosh, it's complicated. Uh, there was another uh, a couple of moves. The Red Wings raised some eyebrows when they drafted Tom Martin from the Toronto Maple Leafs and removed Bobby Bond from their protected list. Red Wings general manager Sid Abel was just having a little fun with the boys, though. He knew that he had just lost Gary Crotto, a left winger, to the Oakland Seals. So the Wings could not have any other players taken in the draft. Each team was supposed to only be able to lose one player by being drafted. So Abel quipped that he was thinking of dropping Gordy Howe from his list. And then he had second thoughts, thinking, ah, we got Punch Imlach in this draft, and if there's a loophole there... Punch already knows about it, and I better not risk it. The interleague draft, as we mentioned, where the Sabres were the only team selecting, uh, they made four choices in that draft from minor league teams, and you already know who they are because Hal Sigurdsson of the Vancouver Sun told us days before. Kevin O'Shea, Cliff Schmatz, and Brian McDonald were, as Sigurdsson uh, predicted, chosen by the Sabres. There was one other name, and that was a slick uh, little center by the name of Billy Inglis, who also became a Buffalo Sabre. And the news of the very busy day ended with word that the judge in the Oakland Seals case had finally made a decision on the ownership of the team, and he said that Charles O. Finley was being awarded 
custody of the child named the Oakland Seals. Of course, the first reaction from reporters and hockey executives was, does this mean the Seals are going to wear white skates? So we're going to give you, like I said, a bit of a bonus this week. We'll get into the rest of the news about the the expansion and amateur drafts in a, in our, uh, I guess we'll call it the bonus episode, coming up in a couple days because uh, we've spent too much time here already, I think. But what did we learn in this episode? Well, we learned the NHL made some rule changes, but they weren't the ones we thought we saw coming. We learned how the order selection for the expansion and amateur drafts was going to go, how it did go. And that a very charitable offer to split the process and make it even for both teams was turned down. But who made the officer offer and who turned it down was quite surprising. And we found the North Stars got their new coach and he was a bit of a surprise as well. So in our next episode, we'll have a complete player-by-player account of the expansion draft as well as the highlights of the amateur draft. And as the summer goes on, we're going to have much, much more. Our 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. And as usual, I can't thank him enough for all his hard work. The uh, very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. And I can't wait to see them live once again. They put on a great show. Other sound effects and musical pieces come from uh, Andy Cole as well. Our research is done with files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. Don't forget to give a listen to the Council of Council of Dads podcast hosted by Andy Cole and Cole Osborne, two great friends who worked in comedy in Toronto many years ago. Each week, they took a very hilarious and semi-serious look at the popular TV show, Council of Dads. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago a Hockey and our WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com through your favorite podcast app and now we're available on YouTube as well. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into this show. We enjoy bringing this to you each and every week. And uh, I think we're going to have a fun summer. On that note, we will see you next time. When the